a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult and who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice? Who taught Him knowledge? Who showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like the drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. Oh, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Oh God, we thank you for this word. You are the only God. There is no one that we can compare with you. Uh, You are the mighty one of Jacob. You have known your people from before the beginning of time. You have called forth your nation Israel. You have called forth all of the nations under your great sovereign hand. We are like grass. We are like flowers. We quickly wither, we quickly fade. But your word, O God, will last forever. Please bless the time that we take now to examine the book of Isaiah. Help me, God, strengthen me for this task to impart some structure, some knowledge, some wisdom on how we are to read this brilliant book that you have written through your servant Isaiah. We commend the rest of our evening to you. And we plead with your Holy Spirit to instruct us. In his name we pray. Amen. What I read for you was Isaiah chapter 40, uh, right into 41, the first paragraph. I skipped over the first six or seven verses. We'll get to them. Uh, I started there because that, that is a... There's so many different climaxes in the book. I... One thing that we're not going to touch on very much today is through chapters 40 through 48, one of the major themes is what I just read for you, the unique supremacy of God. It's a bit of a redundancy, I suppose. Unique supremacy. He's unique and he's supreme. There's no one like him. There's no one that you can compare uh, to him. Uh, And so that's really theologically where the entire book of Isaiah is written from. Isaiah gets that. He understands who God is. There's none like him. And so the whole book needs to be understood from from that lofty position. Another great theme in the book of Isaiah that we don't have time for today is God in the book of Isaiah, unlike anywhere else in the Bible as far as frequency, is described as the high and exalted one. By contrast, Isaiah wants all of creation to be made low. He wants the contrast between the exaltation of God and the reality of God's creation to be immense. We have a high, high view of God in this book of prophecy. So the book of Isaiah is really challenging to read because unlike the books that we've read so far, every book that we've read so far, you start in chapter 1, you end at the, at the end of the book, and it makes sense. It flows. There's, there's some, if there's no plot, there's at least a flow of logic that takes you from the beginning to end. That just doesn't work in, in the book of Isaiah. Did you notice that when you're reading it? You just 
hard to see where we're at. It's, there's a lot of themes and ideas that are recycled and, and put in, and you're in judgment one minute, blessing the next, right? Uh, but it doesn't flow. So the first thing that we're going to do is divide the book into four sections, and then every one of these peaks we're going to visit it in the next hour. I want you to think of the book of Isaiah like a mountain range, and in order to understand and appreciate the book, in order to love it, if you, if you want to love the book, you have to love it in the same way that you would enjoy a, or love a mountain by looking at the mountain range. Now, there's something about getting on the face of the mountain and actually climbing it. And what I want to suggest to you is if you climb an actual mountain up and down all of the peaks, and the more of the actual climbing of the mountain that you've done, when you step back and you're in Banff Springs Hotel and you're looking at the mountains, you'll appreciate the mountain range better. So you have to climb into the book. You have to start in chapter 1 and work your way through so that you can actually get to the goal of the book. The goal of the book, though, is not to process it linearly. The, pr- the goal of the book is to be so familiar with the content that you step back and you enjoy the book from afar. And you see how all the pieces fit together. Does someone want to just shut down that heat for now? So the book of Isaiah can be divided into four sections. The first section is the introduction. It's the longest introduction, formal introduction in the whole book, I think. Or, sorry, in the whole Bible. Six whole chapters. Every prophet is called at the very beginning of the book. Isaiah is not called until chapter six. That's intentional. What, what we're being told by the very composition of the book is we have five chapters just to introduce the theological weightiness of this book before we get to the beginning of the book, which is after chapter six. So the book begins in earnest in chapter seven. And you have chapter seven through 39, which is the second major section of the book, if, if we're including the introduction. And that is written by Isaiah in the reign of Ahaz and Hezekiah mostly, which is in the uh, late eighth century BC. So the 700s. B.C., okay? And that's written to people that are living in his time. He's writing to his contemporaries. Then we get to chapter 40, and chapter 40 through 55 is written to a group of people 150 years after the life of Isaiah, the, the, the remnant that is sitting in Babylon. So chapters 40 through 55, although written... There's a lot of discussion about this in scholarly circles, but we're going to say that it was written by Isaiah. I think there's good proof to say he wrote the whole book, and I've been back and forth on that, and that's where I land after much thought. That Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing to a group of people that Isaiah never knew. And Isaiah foresees the coming exile, which is predicted in chapter 39. The exile in 586 B.C., 2 Kings 25, occurs historically between chapter 39 and chapter 40. Chapter 40 through 55 is written to the people sitting in exile in Babylon. And then you have the fourth major section of the book, which is chapters 56 through 66. And these chapters are written even further into the future to the people who have been restored from Babylon and they're back in Jerusalem. This is an expansive book. This is why scholars say that actually there's at least three Isaiahs or schools of Isaiah. There's Isaiah himself who wrote 
most of 7 through 39. And then there's Deutero-Isaiah, who wrote to the people in exile, who he himself was in exile. And then there's Trito-Isaiah, or 3rd Isaiah, who was part of the remnant that was restored to Jerusalem, and he wrote those last chapters. I used to believe that, because that's the dominant scholarly position. But I've wrestled with this so much, and there's enough reason that I'm not going to get into for our purposes tonight to say that's, that's not accurate. Actually, God inspired Isaiah to write all of this. And I guess I will say this much. What clinched it for me, it's not the only reason, but through 40 through 48, God continually goes back, goes, or, or says to his people, am I not the God who knows the end from the beginning? That I say that these things are going to happen before they happen so that when they happen, you'll know that I'm God. Can your idols do that? Actually, can your idols do anything? If they can do anything, have them do it. They can't tell the future. They can't bring about the future. I'm the God of the past, the present, and the future. So that, that was what finally clinched it for me. That's the, one of the central themes of the book. So then to deny that theologically just didn't make sense. There's several other reasons, but I don't think you need to be persuaded that Isaiah wrote this book. But just knowing this temporal sequence will help you to read the book because you can get your historical moorings. You, you know, okay, these prophecies should be understood within this historical context. So for the rest of the night, what we're going to do is I'm going to read for you the book of Isaiah. But, so like more than me talking, I'm going to be reading scriptures and I'm going to be contextualizing them. What I think that I've done for you is give you a sense of the entire book by reading only the passages that I've selected. So what I've, what I've endeavored to do is to pick the passages that will explain the whole book and then if you read around those passages, what you'll be doing is filling in. So you should get a sense for the whole book by what we're going to do. So we're going to begin by going to the introduction. This is Isaiah 1 through 6. The introduction can be divided further into two parts. You have chapters 1 through 5, which is really the formal introduction of the book. And in chapters 1 through 5, you get the dominant themes in the book. So what chapters 1 through 5 do for us is they establish what I would call a theological riddle. And we'll talk about what that riddle is in a moment. They create a, a riddle that then the book of Isaiah seeks to resolve. So these five chapters create tension. They don't answer how the tension is going to be resolved. But that's what the book of Isaiah does. Chapter 6, then, is the call of Isaiah the prophet. So once you get to the call, some people like to put that at the, in the beginning of the book, so they would say 1 to 5 is intro and 6 through 39. I like to keep it in the intro because I follow John Oswald on so much. He's my, my top influence on this, on the whole book. John Oswald will tell you that chapter 6 begins to unravel the riddle. So that's why I like to keep it together. Now chapters 1 through 5 can be further divided. If you can think of chapters 1 through 5 as basically doom and gloom, judgment, prophesied. But there are these two peaks. Again, we're going to use the mountain metaphor. There are these two mountain peaks that, that jut up higher than the rest of chapters 1 through 5. 
And those two peaks are chapter two, verses one through four, and chapter four, verses two through six. And these two peaks are filled with hope, hence the tension. That's the riddle. You have Israel under judgment for their faithlessness, their breaking of the, cover, the covenant, their idolatry, their lack of concern for social justice, and all kinds of things. And then in, in chapter 2, 1 to 4, and 4, 2 to 6, you have the eschatological Israel, uh, this, this holy Israel. And the two don't match one another. And that's the tension. How are we going to go from the Israel that is, that's the majority of chapters 1 through 5, that's the reality, that's Israel in history so far. How are we going to get from there to eschatological Israel, the perfect holy Israel that leads the nations in worship? That's, that's the point. So let me just walk you through this introduction. We'll start in chapter 1. Chapter 1, if you if you knew anything about an ancient court case, chapter one is God calling Israel to court. And all of the elements, which we're not going to go through, but all of the elements of a court case are there. So it's like starting the book with law and order. Uh, and right in the middle, we get these verses. Ah, sinful nation. So this is, sorry, I should say, Isaiah 1, 4 to 8. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. So God is bringing his charges against his people. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So those are the charges that God brings to his people. Now, in verse 5, we get sort of Isaiah acting as a defense attorney for his for his client, which is Israel, and he pleads with him, like, why? Just plead guilty. Let's, you have no case. Verse 5, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So you get a couple of images here, right? You have the, the image of the body. Your whole body is sick from the, your head to your feet. Your country lies desolate, verse 7. Your cities are burned with fire. And in your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And your city, Jerusalem, is under siege. What does that remind you of in the Torah? Anything? Judgment? And where would you find judgment in the Torah? Deuteronomy, yes. What chapter? 28. What Isaiah is announcing at the beginning of the book is that so many of the curses pronounced in Deuteronomy 28 have come to pass. And we're really near the end of the list of curses. When your city is besieged, after that comes cannibalism, and after that, exile. You're this close to the fullness of the curse being dropped on you. And then, then he says, look, we... We are just like uh, a booth in a cucumber hut. So this is historically probably um, 
prophesied when Hezekiah is in power and Assyria has surrounded Jerusalem. We keep going into 2.5 to 4.1. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. This is Isaiah 2, 6 to 9. You've rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. What does this remind you of? Gold and silver, chariots and horses, idols. Failure of the kings. Deuteronomy 17. In, chapter, uh, in this section, you have three cycles of judgment against the people. That's just a, a sample in between 2.5 and 4.1. Now let's go to chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. So this is God. He's going to sing a love poem to his people. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. So far, so good. But he yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord, uh, uh, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed; for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You get the idea. Some love song. That's the main thrust of the introduction, but there are these two very small passages of hope tucked in. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Pause there for a moment. We already had a very similar verse in 1.1. Why do we have a new beginning to the book here? Because this is the riddle. We have two Israels, so we're going to have an initial superscription for, for each of these Israels. We have uh, the two themes of judgment and exaltation going together throughout the book of Israel. So two superscriptions, one in 1-1 one, one, and one in 2-1. You, you understand how that goes together? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The exaltation of Zion and Jerusalem, Israel leading the nations in procession into the holy city on Mount Zion to worship God. That's the eschatological hope. 
How is Israel that we've just learned about in 1 to 5 going to do that? They themselves are banished. Second glimmer of hope is chapter 4, 2 to 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, probably a reference to the Messiah. So we have in eschatological Israel, we have a Messiah and he's beautiful, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, everyone whose name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. Does this ring similar? When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Here you get an indication You have a Messiah in the land. There's a remnant of holy people in the land. That holy people of Israel is going to lead uh, a remnant of every nation into worship. How are we going to get there? Through a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. God is going to refine his people. That's the main thrust of the book. How do we get from Israel as she is to Israel as she's going to be? And it begins to be answered for us in chapter 6. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. So he sees the pre-incarnate Christ, we learn in John 12. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And I saw seraphim, burning ones, around him, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I fell down on my face, says Isaiah. And I said, Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the King, the God of Israel. And a seraph, burning one, it's a cherubim, one of the cherubim, a burning cherub, takes a coal from the altar of the temple and touches it to Isaiah's lips, a spirit of burning and refinement. It says, your sin has been atoned for. And then there's a cry in the heavenly host, who will we send? Who will go for us? I'm going to read that. But this idea, Isaiah personifies the nation of Israel. He, like the nation, is unclean and is not fit to behold the King, God Almighty. So what's going to happen? Well, just as Isaiah is purified by fire and atonement is made by fire with him, so the nation will be purified by fire so that the nation can be a servant to the nations. So Isaiah is going through what Israel is going to go through for the nations. I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay, I can do that. But how long, how long will judgment be decreed against my people or against your people, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And the Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses are without people, the land is desolate and waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. I want you to preach until all of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 come. And after the curses, I'm going to burn the stump again. And then there's going to be a seed in the stump. And that seed will be holy. And that remnant of one will be my Israel who brings about blessing for the nation of Israel and for all the nations of the earth. This is the Gospel. I'm not going to explain it. We'll let the book explain it. But that sets us up for the whole book. Pretty meaty introduction. Now we come to chapter 7 through 39, which is before the exile. So all of this is prophesied in the late 8th century during the reigns of Ahaz and Hezekiah. Breaking it down a little bit more. The center of these chapters, so we go from chapter 7 all the way to 39. The center of these chapters is 24 to 27. That's where Blair preached from. This is called the Isaiah Apocalypse. It starts in chapter 24 with a total devastation of the earth. And then you have the the great glorious um, salvation after that. Bracketing both sides this central chapter, we have uh, 1428 to 2318 to the one side and it is mirrored by chapters 28 through 33. Let me say to you, if you took chapters 24 through 27 out of the book, 1428 to the end of chapter 33 would just read perfectly. Because what you have there is much like in the book of Amos, in chapters 1428 to 2318, Isaiah is prophesying oracles of Judgment against all of the nations. Judgment against you. Judgment against you. Judgment against you. And then in 28 to 30, he finally comes to Ephraim and Judah. Ephraim being the northern kingdom and Judah being the southern kingdom. This is, this is how God is often working through his prophets. It's not just judgment against the nations. If you don't heed my warnings against the nations, judgment is coming to you. And it flows beautifully. But right in the middle is this, this view to the end of history. We'll talk about that a little bit more. On both sides of this, we have chapters 13, 1 to 14, 27 on the one side and chapters 34 to 35 on the other side. In 13, 1 to 14, 27, we have two major oracles, the longest one being, uh, I guess there's two oracles against Babylon and then a short oracle against Assyria. On the other side, you have oracles against the whole universe. So chapter 34 is destruction for for the whole world and the whole universe. It's cosmic in its proportions. And then you have the wilderness becoming a fruitful new Eden again in chapter 35. So how do these two go together? Well, at the very end of chapter 14, uh, well, chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, we're told that as God decreed these things against Babylon and Assyria, remember, those are the, the huge empires of this period of history so also God decrees the same for all the nations of the earth. And so that's paralleled by 34 and 35. Here we have judgments against the whole earth and all the nations thereof. Then on either side of this, we have chapters 7 to 12, and then on the, on the far side, chapters 36 through 39. Here we're touching down into history again. In 7 to 12, you have the reign of King Ahaz. 
and in chapters 36 through 39, you have the reign of King Hezekiah. So it's, you have to read it linearly, but it's much better to read it from the center out or from the outside in. Because every group, every block has its parallel block except for 24 to 27, which makes it the central part of this major section of the book. Let's take a look at chapter seven through 12. Just a little background. Uh, King Ahaz is worried because Pekah and Rezin want to come. That's the kings of Israel and Syria. So the two kingdoms right above Judah want to uh, enter into a three-part alliance with Judah against Assyria. And Judah says no. So now they want to conquer Judah so that the strength of Judah can be in their alliance against Assyria. And King Ahaz is scared. And Isaiah comes and says, don't be scared. By this time next year, those two kings will be nothing. Just have faith. Don't, don't raise an army. Don't get alarmed. Just wait it out. Have faith. Ask for a sign. Anything as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. And Ahaz doesn't have faith. He doesn't believe that it can happen. And because of that, the Lord through Isaiah says, because Ahaz, you did not trust me. And these chapters are all about trust. Who are you going to trust? Because you didn't trust me, I'm going to allow the Assyrians to come in. They were going to stop at the boundary of Judah, but now they're going to come in and they're going to take all of Judah and only Jerusalem will remain. That's the punishment that God issues uh, against Ahaz and he allows Jerusalem to remain because of the unconditional promises that he made with David. So that's where we are here. Uh, in Isaiah 8, 5-8, to the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people, led by King Ahaz, has refused the waters of Shiloh, those are the, the gently flowing streams that come out of the Gihon Spring and nourish with life. I offered you life from the Gihon Spring. But you didn't want that. You didn't trust me. You didn't believe me. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, that's Pekah, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel was prophesied in chapter 7, which is the king who will have faith. So, this is a, just a graphic picture that there's going to be a mini flood of sorts, but it's not going to be a flood of water. It's going to be a flood of Assyrian armies. And everything is going to be destroyed except for Jerusalem. That's what up to the neck means. And this is exactly what happened. In order to understand the next verse, um, Assyria came in from the north and came in down through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the Galilee, came all the way down. That's up in the northern kingdom and then came down into Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and besieged the city. So darkness came to the people of God first in the north, in the Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's where the Assyrian army struck first. That's important for this. In the same prophecy of judgment and, and, and destruction, 
Isaiah breaks out into one of those, but that's not the end. There's hope on the other side of judgment. These are verses that you're familiar with, and they're so beautiful. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's up in the north, in the Galilee. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. That's a highway that passed all the way by the north of the Sea of Galilee over to the Mediterranean Sea and down. He's made that highway glorious. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. I mean, how clear could the prophet be? Right? Judgment came first to the Galilee, but the light of the Messiah shone first in the Galilee. Which is exactly what is prophesied in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Then skipping down, we talk about how there will be no more war after a time. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now let's just put this into its proper context. This is a prophecy that's being delivered to the royal doorstep of King Ahaz. Because right before this, there's all these prophecies of judgment and destruction. You didn't trust me. You didn't have faith. Therefore, Assyria is going to destroy the north and Ju- Judah, and only Jerusalem will remain. But the light will shine first in the north, then it will come down into Judah, and the light that shines first up in the north in the Galilee will come to the city of David and sit on the throne of David, and there will be a Davidic king who will reign forever, and he is the Lord. So y- you have to see what Isaiah is doing. He's saying there is judgment coming, Jerusalem will not yet fall. On the other side is the promise of hope. And we get a picture of this. What will the reign of this, of this messianic king be like, this Davidic king be like? Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. There shall come forth from the shoot of the stump of Jesse. Okay, so what you have to understand here is after this nice picture of chapter 9, Isaiah goes back to destruction language and judgment and he says God's going to chop everybody down he's going to chop down Assyria and he's going to chop down his own people and even the house of David is going to be chopped down so all you have is a stump now we know about 2nd Samuel 7 right you need a Davidic king God promised unconditionally and this is how God's going to reconcile that that difficulty there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse a branch from his roots shall bear fruit If you're an arborist, it's a good day. A lot of tree language today. So there's a stump, but out from the stump comes a shoot. The tree's going to bloom again. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this one, this shoot. And the Spirit of wisdom and understanding shall be upon him, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and so on and so forth. Well, let me read it. The righteous he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We have the divine warrior king coming in here who is the seed of David and he is going to rule the world with justice and righteousness. And his reign, if we kept reading, it's like a new Eden where there's peace among the animal kingdom and so forth. Just look at this. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. Remember that. We're going to see that again. So this is a promise of the future. So there's immediate destruction, but in the future, hope. That's all in 7 to 12. Now let's go over to 36 to 39. One of the things that we have to ask here is, who's this Davidic seed? And Hezekiah is looking like he might be the guy. He might be this promised Davidic king because he has faith. Whereas Ahaz, his father, didn't trust God, Hezekiah does trust God. I won't go through all of the examples, but at the very end of chapter 39, we find out that it's not Hezekiah because Hezekiah wants to enter into an alliance with Babylon. Hezekiah wants to hedge his bets. He's trusted the Lord, but now he could just use a little backup. Because of that, because remember Deuteronomy 17, don't trust in the military might of, of your own horses. Don't enter into military alliances with other nations. So then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that with, with your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's a bad deal. To become a eunuch, it's bad personally, but it's bad for the dynasty, right? If the Davidic heirs are eunuchs, that's potentially the end of the Davidic dynasty. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word, that the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. He is not the promised Davidic king. Right after this, there's exile. Um, so chapters 14, 28 to 23, 18, and 28 to 33, we're not going to review anything there. But these are just oracles of judgment against the nations and against Israel and, and Judah also, including Jerusalem. This is important, though, because that's the historical firmament or historical ground from which we get this Isianic apocalypse. So in chapter 24, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls." and it will not rise again. What does that remind you of? The windows of heaven are open, the foundations of the earth tremble, the earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken. What does that remind you of? The flood. Exactly. Chapter 24 says there's a judgment coming against the earth that is paralleled only by the flood. So all those surrounding chapters, 23 through, or 13 through 23 and 28 through 33, judgment against the nations of 
Ahaz and Hezekiah's day become typological. Just as God judged the nations in history, so he's going to judge the earth at the end of the age. We're seeing consistency in God's pattern. This is the final judgment prophesied in 24. I don't have much time. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, Second Peter 3 ties this together. That's really good. On that day, so the rest of chapters 24 through 27, you have six on that day statements, which I think mirror the six days of creation. We're getting new creation. These chapters, I don't have time to get into it, but you actually have a reverse of the fall as we're working back to Eden. Six on that day. Six days, and after the sixth day, you have a new Eden. So you can look that up yourself. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. So you have great punishment. That's one of the things. I have to pick up the pace. And then this is climactic. Uh, These are the verses that Blair preached for us, so I'll go over it quickly. But on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There's a great feast on Mount Zion with all of the people who come through the, the final judgment of the earth. So it's just, just like Noah came through the flood. So we're in Christ. We come through the judgment, which is the Passover. And we come out and the ark landed on Mount Ararat, but we will land on Mount Zion and we will feast with God. And God will swallow up death. And I agree 100% with Blair. This is fulfilled in Revelation 19. Isaiah 26, just go down to verse 19. Well, what if you're not alive when this comes to pass? Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. You see here, the, you who dwell in the dust. Adam was made from the dust, but because of his sin, to dust he will return. But from that dust, he will be raised up to feast with the Lord on Mount Zion. That's that's the journey of the saved elect. From dust to dust, from dust. Which is awesome. So uh, there's so much more I could say about that. But what we see here, the big theme is trust. And, And the whole idea, how do you get to the feast on the top of Mount Zion? If we had more time to look at all of this, the big theme is do you trust God to do it or not? Do you trust in mortal man? Do you trust in the nations or do you trust in the Lord God? Do you have faith? 
And, and the whole thrust of this, if you trust in yourself, you'll die. If you trust in God, you'll be raised from the dead to feast with him. That's the main point of this section. But at the end of chapter 39, you have exile. The next major section is written for people in exile, chapters 40 through 55. Let's take a look. This section is fairly simple in its structure, whereas the last one was a little more complicated. You can divide these, these chapters into two main parts. You have chapters 40 through 48, and you have chapters 49 through 55. And the main theme of these, this section is Exodus. It's a new Exodus. So in chapters 40 through 48, you have the historical second Exodus of the nation of Israel. Uh, unlike coming from Egypt, this time Israel is going to be delivered from Babylon. And so you have a series of prophecies in those eight chap or nine chapters that deal with the exodus of God's people from Babylon. And there's references back to the exodus of his people from Egypt. Now those chapters are so nice, right? Oh great, God's not done with us. We're sitting in exile, but he's going to bring us out of exile just as he brought us out of slavery. You remember Sarah's two harem experiences? Just want to remind you, we did start this way back in Genesis. This is that. You have Exodus 1. Sarah's delivered from the Egyptian harem. Exodus 2. Sarah's delivered from the Abimelech's harem, just to remind you. But the major theological crisis at the end of chapter 48 is what will prevent Israel from resorting to her old ways? Are we any further ahead? Like how many times around this Motif, is God going to go with his people? Delivered once, they fell into idolatry. Delivered twice, are they going to fall into idolatry? You bet they will. So the big theological crisis is, well, a historical exodus is fine and good. But we need a deeper exodus. We need to be delivered from our slavery and our captivity to sin. This is what is so brilliant about Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet that really begins to explain the macro typology that we've been talking about in, in this frontline phase two. He begins to say, this has got to be playing on two levels or else it doesn't work. What we're going through historically has to have a deeper uh, significance of salvation for us. Otherwise, there, we're never getting off this repeated cycle. It's just like judges, around and around and around we go, but there's no improvement. We need a king. We need a, we need a, a better exodus. And so chapters 49 through 55 is exactly that. It's the deeper exodus. It's not delivering from Egypt. It's not delivering from Babylon. It's delivering God's people from sin. And, and what Isaiah does to tie these two together is he begins the second section back here in 42. He drops nine verses at the beginning of chapter 42 that actually belong to chapters 49 to 55. Why does he do that? Because what he's signaling for us here is what we're going to read about historically 
Israel being delivered a second time, a second exodus, this time from Babylon, we need to understand at a deeper level. And so he's tying them together right at the beginning. But still, the two major sections. Isaiah 40, 1-5. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What does this remind you of? Every gospel begins with this passage. Every one. John the Baptist. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. Now wait a minute. I thought you said that these chapters were about God's deliverance from Babylon. Yes, but the, the gospel writers and John himself understood that the restoration of the remnant in Babylon to Jerusalem was typological. The true exodus was about to begin in the days of John. But John wasn't the one that was going to affect it. He's preparing a way for an individual we're about to meet who will be the new Moses to effect a deeper deliverance, not from Egypt, not from Babylon, but from sin. John understood that. The second thing that we should notice here is what makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. If, if you're immersed in the book of Numbers, that's, that's significant. We don't want to go in circles. We don't want to linger in the wilderness. We want a straight highway to get us straight to where God's taking us. Give us a straight highway. I don't even want there to be a bump in the road. No hills, no valleys. A straight highway that takes us from our captivity to the promised land that God has, has promised for us. So we're, we're in Exodus motif. We're in wilderness motif. John the Baptist picks us up and says, that's what I'm declaring. This deeper deliverance is about to begin. I'm going to introduce you to him, says John. More Exodus language. I read this for you already. This is how we started. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Now I've heard sermons it says, trust in the Lord and he'll give you strength for today. That's a nice devotional, but it misses the point. Anyone see the illusion? Exodus 19. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt on wings like eagles. What's the image there? Little eaglets. I like that word, eaglets, little birds. 
They can't fly. They're too weak to fly. So the mother eagle boots them out of the nest anyway, and they fall, and they're struggling. And the mother eagle comes in and just scoops them up and carries them. And then drops them again, and they try to fly. And she comes in under. God says, that's how I delivered you from from Egypt. And that's what this is about. The whole chapter is about God is able to do it. He delivered you once. He can deliver you again. This is not the end. And right here at the end of chapter 40, you have to be thinking second exodus. That's the whole point. God's going to do it again. Mother eagle is coming. And your little eaglets, you're going to fly straight out of Babylon. We keep going with more um, Exodus imagery. In Isaiah 43, 14 to 17, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior they lie down they cannot rise they are extinguished and quenched like a wick what does that remind you of yeah coming through the red sea right you have you have israel going through the red sea and then pharaoh and his army and his chariots they try to come and god extinguishes them by putting the the sea over top of them again and what this is saying is i'm going to do it again just as i took you out of babylon so i'm going to take or out of egypt i'm going to take you out of babylon and then the end this is the very end of this section go out from babylon flee from chaldea declare this with a shout of joy proclaim it send it out to the end of the earth say the lord has redeemed his servant jacob they did not thirst when they let when he led them through the deserts he made water flow for them from the rock he split the rock and the water gushed out what does that remind you of in exodus but then again in numbers So the reason I want to show you this is I'm not just making it up. There's clear references to the Exodus. Uh, God is going to deliver them from Babylon historically just as he delivered them from Egypt historically. How's he going to do it? Who's the Moses figure? God says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah. It's the only time the word Messiah is used in the whole book. Of Cyrus, the Persian pagan idol-worshipping king. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. This is a description of Cyrus coming in and defeating the Babylonians. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. So that's the Babylonians collected trophies from all over the world and put them in, the, in their temple and you couldn't get in there. Like they guarded them. I'm going to give you all that treasure that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. 
For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Emphasis on name, name, name. God knows him. He's named him. He's called. And remember, Isaiah is prophesying this hundreds of years before it happened. Isaiah is not even born. Or Cyrus is not even born. But I name you now. And you're my Moses. Now, why, why Cyrus? I think there's a couple reasons. This is judgment against Israel. Like, there's no one fit to deliver them. God has to use a pagan idol-worshiping king to deliver them. But there's a second thing, too. God will do whatever he wants to do. Yeah, he, he, he delivered them through Moses, one of their own. But he can use a pagan king, too. God is delivering them. God. And this is his chosen means. This is the new thing that he's decided to do. So now, there are four servant songs, which I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to read, you can read them. I'll, I'll identify them for you. But progressively, as we transition now to the deeper deliverance. So in chapters 40 through 48, it's all about historical deliverance from Babylon. Now the book transitions and says, but that's just typological of a deeper deliverance. And who is the Moses servant? Or the Moses first, um, figure there, it's the servant of the Lord. And he is introduced to us in chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. I think that reminds us back of uh, chapter 11. So there's a connection there. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now this is really important. The deeper deliverance is for Israel, for sure, but also the coastlands. The coastlands in Hebraic thought in the Old Testament, that's the end of the, er end of the earth. Gentiles. This deeper deliverance is even for them. Thus says the God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you, that is the servant, in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. This is my blood of the new covenant. I will give you as a covenant for the people. How is this new, deeper deliverance going to bring about? Well, this servant is going to be given as a covenant. A light for the nations. There's a second time, very clearly... That this deeper deliverance is not just for Israel. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. When John the Baptist says, are you the one that we should expect? Jesus quoted this and said, tell John these things are happening. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Not the idols. And so on. That's a first servant song. Second servant song. There's one part I want you to see his. 
Verse 3, so this is Isaiah 49, 1-7. I'm just going to highlight some things. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. So now this servant, this one, become, he embodies the mission originally given to Israel. Go back to Exodus 19. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests for the nations. They failed. Now the kingdom of priests needs a king priest. So the king priest, the servant, will do for Israel what Israel was supposed to do for the nations. But the king priest will do it first for Israel. And if for Israel, then also for the nations. And what is that thing? Well, we'll talk about that. Look at verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Explicit. This deeper deliverance is for Israel, but that's too small a thing. If I'm going to send you to do this thing, we're not just going to save Israel. We're going to save all the nations. third servant song is Isaiah 50 verses 4 to 9, which we'll not read. You can read it. One thing I'll say, as we get further in these servant songs, more detail is given. By the time you get to the servant song in chapter 50, you're starting to see that he's going to suffer. But now, look at this. You, you all know this, but I do have to read this one. This is, how is God's servant, this new Israel, this priest king to Israel, going to save Israel and the nations. Behold, this is Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The imagery here is he's going to get beat up so bad he doesn't even look like a man anymore. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who's believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb Passover lamb 
Behold the Lamb of God, says John the Baptist, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's a picture of resurrection. He's, he dies and he's buried. But then he'll see his offspring and his days will be prolonged. He'll come back to life. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He'll, he'll have vitality and life again. Resurrection. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How is God going to affect the deeper deliverance, the greater exodus for Israel and the nations through his servant who will be the Passover lamb for the world. That's this section. Now remember at the end of 48 Israel's been delivered from Babylon and they're back in Jerusalem. The last section chapters 56 through 66 deal with that remnant community in Jerusalem. On the outer edges, we find out that exactly like we had predicted, if God just delivers his people from Babylon, they're not going to be any better. And we find out that they're still worshiping idols. They're they're still not caring for the poor. And so in these outer sections, 56, 1 to 8, and 66, 18 to 24, God lays it down. He says, look, if you repent, I'll forgive you. But if you carry on, I'm going to judge you and condemn you to hell. Like, there's no third exodus. That's basically what these sections are saying. And in 56, 1 to 8, what we find out is God says, in fact, Israel... You are so twisted that you haven't learned from my, my second deliverance of you, this time from Babylon, that if a eunuch calls out in faith, I'll receive him and I'll reject you. I will receive foreigners into my temple to worship me before I welcome you, unless you repent. God lays it down. So that, that's those outer sections. No, in, in basically, no third ex- exodus. In, in the next section in, you have 56.9 to 58.14, and then on the other side, you have 63.15 to 66.17. And in these sections, we see two Israels. We see contrite, repentant Israel, who has learned something from their experience in Babylon. 
and you have apostate Israel who's just going about their business as they did before the, uh, the, um, the exile. So there's that tension there. In chapters 59, and then on the other side, 63, 1 to 14, we have these very graphic pictures of God as a divine warrior. He said, I've had enough. We're coming to the end. We're not going to go around and around and around on this merry-go-round. I'm a warrior, and I'm going to come to bring an end to everyone who opposes me. This is it. And I'll save those who repent. That's those sections. And then chapter 60, 62, and then tucked in over here, it's the only one that breaks the symmetry of these chapters, 65, 17 to 25, you see the exalted Zion that we were introduced to way back in chapter 2, 1 to 4, and 6, sorry, 4, 2 to 6. We begin to see that exalted Zion again. And we have exalted Zion And in 65, 17, 25, we have the new heavens and the new earth. I believe that this is out of symmetry because Isaiah wanted to highlight it particularly. And then in the very middle, we have Isaiah 61, which is, I would call it the fifth servant song. So I'm going to skip over most of the scripture that I had for this section. And I'll just sort of summarize it. We're going to land in 61 and then summarize. So in this section, we just see that God is calling on people to, to learn something from exile in 56, 1 to 8. I will read this one because this is how the book of Isaiah ends. As, uh, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So there's a group of people that will live forever and worship God. But verse 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. This is how the Bible ends too. Final judgment, you're either in the lake of fire or in the new heavens and the new earth. That's how the book of Isaiah ends. You're either in the lake of fire, their fire shall not be quenched, or you're in the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 59 is just this great picture of the divine warrior strapping on armor for battle. I just want to highlight this part in verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. So here you have God strapped up to, to destroy everyone, but then tucked in there in 59, 20 and 21, he sends a redeemer out to shelter those who repent. And you see the wrath of God falling against the world, but this is Jesus on the donkey coming in to Jerusalem in the triumphant entry. And this is the redeemer that comes to Zion to absorb the wrath of the divine warrior for all who find shelter under his care by faith. Chapter 60, this is just a beautiful picture of the exalted Zion. And 
what you have there is all of the nations coming to exalted Zion. So you have Israel leading the kings of the nations who bring all of their wealth into the exalted Zion. And you have gifts of frankincense and myrrh. So you see the beginning of this with the wise men. And then this is just a description of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what I do need to read for you. Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And it goes on and just talks. This, contextually first, is the climax of the book of Isaiah, rivaled only by chapters 24 to 27. Because we see the servant that we met in chapter 42, and as we learn in 49, and then 50, and then ultimately 53, the mission of the servant is to die in the place of others. We see him standing on the top of the exalted Zion, proclaiming the year of Jubilee. What's the year of Jubilee? The forgiveness of debts and the giving of the inheritance. So the servant of the Lord that, that suffered for the people is now standing in the exalted Zion declaring jubilee. Saying, I'm going to now cancel your debts and I'm going to give you your inheritance. Does this ring a bell anywhere else in the Bible? Luke 4.18, Jesus launches his earthly ministry by going to Nazareth, his hometown. Remember uh, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. There will be no contempt and gloom for uh, uh, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, for the, a, a light has shone. The light shines in the Galilee first, in Nazareth. He takes the Isaiah scroll and he opens it very intentionally to this chapter. And he reads I think probably the whole chapter. Luke only gives us the first three verses. And he says, today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. What's Jesus saying? That's how I want to end our time. What was Jesus saying? What, what were the implications of him saying so? This ties the entire book together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today in your hearing this scripture is fulfilled. Wait a minute. He's not standing on exalted Zion forgiving debts and handing out inheritance. He's in Nazareth. How is it fulfilled? What he means by that is, I am this one. I am the one who will be declaring this. Now look at all of the intertextuality. 
from Isaiah 61, we go back to the divine warrior section. Remember, this, this whole section from 56 to 66 has been about, okay, Israel's back in Jerusalem, but they're no better. I mean, some of them have learned something, but the divine warrior is going to come out and say, there's no third exodus. But the divine warrior, before he strikes his lethal blow, sends a redeemer to Zion. And that redeemer is described for us. The Lord says to this redeemer, so a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. The Redeemer is the one who has the Spirit. Go back to 61. This is key. What we're going to see, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Redeemer who protects us from the divine warrior, my Spirit that is upon you. So whoever's speaking in 61, announcing Jubilee, is also our Redeemer. He is also... Our servant, the servant that Isaiah introduces who will give us this deeper deliverance ultimately in Isaiah 53 by becoming the lamb in our place. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The one who's standing on exalted Zion is the redeemer who protects us from the divine warrior. He is also the servant who brings about the deeper deliverance. This time our deliverance from sin. More than that, Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's also the Davidic king from chapters 7 through 39. Right? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and on the throne of David and over his kingdom. We know that we can tie those together because the one that is described as being filled with the Spirit of the Lord is the branch that comes out of the stump of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David. It's the Davidic king. Now the Davidic king is the shoot that comes from the stump. So whoever's speaking in chapter 61 is also the holy seed from the burned out stump in chapters 1 through 6. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled and the holy seed is its stump. If we zoom out then, what we see is Jesus is in Nazareth saying, today in your hearing this is fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is on the Redeemer who protects us from the divine warrior. The Spirit of the Lord is on the servant who dies in our place. The Spirit of the Lord is upon the Davidic king who reigns. And the Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Seed. And so in, there's a main character in every section. In the introduction, chapters 1 to 6, the hope is in the Holy Seed. Jesus is the Holy Seed. In chapters 7 through 39, the hope is a future Davidic king. Jesus is the future Davidic king. In chapters 40 through 55, the hope is a suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. In chapters 56 through 66, the hope is the redeemer who protects us from the divine warrior. Jesus is the redeemer who takes the wrath 
of the divine warrior. So when Jesus stands up and opens a scroll to Isaiah 61, and he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing, he's saying, I am the great hope that is announced in and through every prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's, I wish I could give you more, but we're out of time. I hope that this at least has given you some sense. We've actually visited every one of these peaks and valleys on this mountain range. So when you're reading it, try and go back and understand what is the context and then just step back and be in awe of this brilliant prophecy that more than any other book captures all of the Bible in one place. There's 66 books in the Bible. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 39 chapters right up until the exile. Up until chapter 39, it's mostly about judgment. From 40 through 55, that is uh, mostly about the gospel, right? And you have from 40 to 66, uh, 27 chapters. That's how many books are in the New Testament. And the Bible ends with the promise of coming judgment, a new heavens, a new earth, an exalted Zion, and final judgment, where you'll either be in the new heavens and the new earth, or you'll be in the lake of fire. The whole Bible in the book of Isaiah, and Jesus on every page. Let me pray. God, I don't know, it feels like we just went so fast, and I don't know how clear I was, but I pray that you would bless these men and in spite of me, uh, help them to see the glory of this prophecy. I thank you for uh, what you've preserved for us in and through the pages of Isaiah. Help us to meditate on it and to be filled with great joy. Jesus, we thank you that you're the holy seed. Israel was burned or chopped down, then burned. The stump was burned and out of a burned out stump, you came into the world, saved Israel, and as the new Israel saved the nations. That's amazing. We thank you that you're the Davidic king that was promised. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, there's no other king, not Hezekiah, not Josiah, uh, but you are the Davidic king promised, and the Spirit of God is upon you, and you'll bring in a new age where the, the wolf will lay down with the lamb. And you are our suffering servant who brought about a deeper deliverance not from Egypt, not from Babylon, but from our slavery and captivity to sin. And God, you, or Jesus, you are our redeemer. We know that God will visit the world with wrath and fury, vengeance for our sin. So we take shelter under your wings. Thank you that you absorbed the wrath that we deserved, that you rode on a donkey into Jerusalem to die to protect us from the wrath of God. And Jesus, you are the one who stands atop the exalted Zion uh, to promise us forgiveness of all our debts and an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. So we look forward to feasting with you on Zion's holy mountain when you will once and for all swallow up death and wipe clear our tears after you've raised us from the dead. Oh God, what a book. We love you.
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.